Why is Mr. Trump handing out $54 billion to the Pentagon? Strasvitya, it's time to say hello to the Russians. And the RAF in the Middle East, a minute-by-minute operation. Our guys are and girls are having to show exceptional judgment, understanding and decision-making minute-by-minute on every sortie that they're on. So, President Donald Trump has addressed Congress. His mood seemed totally different from the aggressive tone he used at his inauguration in January. Has Mr Trump turned the corner into Mr Nice Guy? Well, Dr Karen von Hippel is Director General at the Royal United Services Institute and I'm joined as ever by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Dr von Hippel, good to speak to you. What do you reckon, Karen? Is this uh, Trump, the new Trump from now on? Um, well, thank you, Kate, for asking that. I, I don't think so. I think if you look at the overall number, uh, or if, if we count his, let's just say, late night tweets versus his calm, cool presidential manner, you, the, the late night tweet side of the uh, ledger will win. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, people try to calm him down before he does something like this to make him appear presidential. Very few people think he's acted presidential uh, since he started. And so, yes, uh, he'll get lots of positive encouragement for this. But but we also know he can be petty and vindictive about very small things, too. Mm. And he says he's going to cut the State Department budget and give the money to the Pentagon. Can he actually do that? Um, let's just say he can try. There will be a lot of people defending the State Department budget, including the generals, including many people at the Pentagon who realize the the value of diplomacy. A uh, small investment in diplomacy prevents a very large investment in, in, in the military later down the road, and they all recognize that. So I suspect there'll be enough pushback that, you know, that this will change. Does the Pentagon actually need what he says it needs to do its present job? Yeah, good question. I mean, you saw at the end of the Obama administration, there was actually cutbacks on a number of different programs that were considered too expensive or unnecessary. So it's not clear to me. I don't, you know, he's, he's uh, decided that America is under this incredible threat by jihadists when the numbers are just too small to, to, you know, to verify that claim. I mean, there are far more Americans that are killed by small handguns owned by Americans than by jihadists, significantly more. Christopher Lee, he also said that he wanted to push for reimbursements, effectively sending a bill to countries that the US had helped militarily. What does that mean in practice? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost impossible to do because, um, you know, if anything, you get a bill and you say, what's this for? And please account for that. I mean, it, it, it's a tokenism which he's got to use. And it's a public sort of a statement. But, for example, if you put a... Uh, if you get into a country and you try and sort it out and then afterwards you've got a bit of rebuilding and you have to make sure an American company actually comes to do the rebuilding. I'm thinking of Baghdad at the moment. Um, you know, you might, you might be able to turn around to the people and say, look, we've actually got the contracts uh, for, for doing this thing. But for the actual picking up the bill and saying you've got to spend some money as well within our country, that's a very difficult thing to do. Mm. I tell you what's interesting about this $54 billion. You know, it's about as much as the Russians spend on their defence anyway. Hmm. Uh, you imagine what the, uh, Putin and, and, and co are thinking about this, especially as the Russians are especially strapped for cash. There's another thing is the U-54 billion and, and the sort of things that he might want to do on expanding the Air Force, the Navy, etc. This is a decade. 
at least a decade of spending, a decade of design, of designing. Uh, you design a ship and it takes 15 years to get into service. And so this is a long thing. This is not some which you can come back, say, at the State of the Union message and say, well, we've done that. Now, the next thing we're going to do is, is spend another 54 billion. So when, when he talks about being much more uh, scrupulous and uh, aggressive on defence contracts, do you think, are you saying then that's not as possible as he thinks it is? Uh, I, th- I think it's difficult, but it, it, that side of it is possible. But, you know, as, it, as, as, as Karen was saying, it's a pretty good question to say, well, what are you going to spend this money on? And how do you know it fits in? Uh, for example, you spend money on defence in theory uh, to, to back up your foreign policy. Well, sort out what your foreign policy is, then you can manage the, the military that, that, that guarantees it. Now, I think America already does that. Dr. Karen van Hippel, are you getting a clearer idea of what his foreign policy is? Yeah, Christopher asked the fundamental question. We really have no idea what his foreign policy is. We do not know what his policy on Russia is, on uh, jihadist, uh, what he calls radical Islamic terrorism, uh, on a number of areas. So it's sort of cart before the horse. You put the budget out before we even really know what the money is to be used for. Uh, So that was right. That was absolutely the right question to ask. I remember you saying when we, we had a chat formally that um, that you couldn't imagine his attention span would really last for, for very complicated subjects in terms of uh, geopolitics. Have you changed your opinion at all? Are, are you reassured in what you've seen since he's become president? Alas, no. From whatever we hear, uh, he gets bored in meetings. He even tweets sometimes in meetings. Um, and he just still is not that interested in the details. Now, of course, this is coming on the heels of a president who was super wonky about the details. Obama was way in the weeds and probably some happy medium would be the answer. But at the moment, he's still on the far end of the scale. But don't forget, he's also learning too. He doesn't know enough about these issues. And the more he learns, the more he realizes there's a reason, you know, for doing things the way we we're doing them, whether it's on health care or on Russia or on on ISIL, which I suspect when this review is done that Mattis is, has been undertaking, uh, that he will come up with doing pretty much what the U.S. is already doing, maybe a wee bit more, but it won't be that different. What, what, he, what he also needs, he needs a couple of things that, 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 that work, that happen. So he can turn around and say, there you are. It happened, uh, and what, therefore what, what, would, what would he choose? Well, I mean, do you think? Yeah, he can put out: is he going? Is he going to a new policy, for example, on healthcare? And he can say, look, that that's going to happen. Um, the other thing, which is which I find fascinating, is the way that Congress has reacted. He, I don't mean it's turned it into a sort of vaudeville show, but uh, when I watched and saw this sort of the suffragettes all dressed up, never seen that before. He's changed the whole mood. He, whatever he's done. Dr. Karen von Hippel, what do you think we're going to see in terms of uh, foreign affairs, foreign policy in the coming days from from Donald Trump? Probably not that much different from what we've seen. Uh, I mean, it's it really does depend on his cabinet members. It depends on on, on Secretary of Defense Mattis, on Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson. They should be coming up with their strategies. Of course, the White House needs to endorse it uh, and support it. The problem right now in the White House is that we have three separate power structures. We have Steve Bannon, who set up the Strategic Initiatives Group. We've got uh, Jared Kushner, the, the, the son-in-law of Trump, who seems to be getting involved in a lot of foreign policy aspects. And then we have McMaster, now the new national security advisor, and it's not entirely clear to me who is in charge of what. 
Well, good to talk to you, Dr. Karen von Hippel, as ever. Uh, come back again. Thank you very much for your time. That's Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Now, an influential group of MPs is calling for more top-level talks between the UK and Russia, despite big differences over Syria and Ukraine. The Commons Foreign Affairs Committee says engagement with Moscow is essential and warns against boycotting the World Cup there next year. Well, James Hurst has been speaking to the committee's chairman, Crispin Blunt. We need to uh, engage more. We need to be more serious about the level of engagement, both at the political level and at the uh, cultural people-to-people level. And there need to be appropriate resources to support both. And uh, ministers certainly appear to be, in terms of the research analysis underneath them, appear to be flying virtually on empty after nearly, uh, nearly three decades of the diminution of our capability of actually understanding Russia. We do still have some contacts with Russia. There's reason, isn't there? There are many reasons why those contacts have, have been drawn in, though. Yes, there are, and we've really now reached the nadir of the, uh, of the position. It's begun to change. We've heard you know, Theresa May's advice to the Republican caucus uh, in Philadelphia about policy towards Russia have said, engage but beware, and we agree with that. And we've had a period of pretty, pretty constant disengagement and certainly withdrawal from engagement uh, after the Litvinenko uh, murder. And that's when intelligence-to-intelligence intelligence agency links ceased. And we got to a position where Philip Hammond, as Foreign Secretary, was saying it wasn't even worth talking to Foreign Minister Lavrov. Well, I think we need to uh, get a sensible level of political engagement at the policy level and then, uh, and then also underpin that with proper engagement with the Russian society. This, though, is a country that has murdered somebody on British soil. It has uh, taken Ukrainian territory. It is bombing indiscriminately in Syria. If we engage with them, is that not just appeasement? Is that not just giving them carte blanche? It depends what your engagement is. If we need to go into this very clear-eyed. Our report makes crystal clear the nature of the uh, regime we're dealing with in Russia. Uh, However, they are still an important government globally. And uh, so you can't just take an opt-out and hope that somebody else is going to do the engagement uh, for you. And Britain has found itself as the most hawkish uh, end of the spectrum with regard to all the issues that that you've mentioned. And to a degree, we then sort of washed our hands of the necessity of engaging with Russia. We should make perfectly clear what we think about their breaches of international humanitarian law. We should make perfectly clear about what they have done to uh, their own citizens at home as well as our citizens, uh, uh, in Mr. Livinenko's case, in the, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and the sanctions are applied appropriately around their seizure of the Crimea and eastern Ukraine as a consequence. And we are also uh, suggesting we now need to look at the uh, criminal sanctions on individuals when they've been, when they've been responsible for, uh, for breaches of international law. Looking at your report, particularly when you focus on things like cultural links, when you talk about not boycotting the World Cup, mm. is this about building bridges with the Russian people rather than the Russian government, I wonder. That's probably quite a good way of of putting it. We need to look at the... What's the strategic relationship between Russia and Europe? Russia is a significant contributor to European civilization. It is not a completely European country because of its size and because of 
uh, how much of it is actually lies in lies in Asia. We need to better understand how that uh, European-Asian mix works. But in the long run, Russia is part of the European family of nations. And if it has a strategic competitor in the long term, it's not us, it's China. That was Crispin Blunt speaking to James Hurst. Sit-rep with Kate Still to come, South Sudan, the next big test for the British Army. And a US drone kills a top Middle East terrorist. Britain's most senior officer in the US-led coalition fighting so-called Islamic State has said they're killing the group's fighters more quickly than it can replace them. British Major General Rupert Jones, deputy commander of the Combined Joint Task Force, told reporters that their destruction just becomes a matter of time. Coalition airstrikes have killed about 45,000 fighters during the international campaign. RAF Akrotiri is at the forefront of the British effort and our reporter Simon Newton is there. Hello Simon. It's not easy to get detailed information about Operation Shader, is it? Uh, but you've had a bit of a breakthrough. No, it's uh, for obvious reasons it's um, it's fairly difficult to get detailed information but we uh, I've had a long chat with uh, Air Commodore Johnny Stringer who is the UK Air Component Commander at what the RAF call the AC. Um, he is essentially the, the RAF officer in charge of the UK's airborne contribution to, to Shada, which, which is second only to, to the US. He's a former Jaguar and a Typhoon pilot. Uh, and he told me that this uh, is one of the most co- complex targeting environments that the RAF has uh, operated in for many decades. We're aided by some exceptional men and women, not just flying our, uh, our intelligence and surveillance aircraft, but also doing a fantastic job in understanding the imagery and, uh, and other products that are coming back and then using them more widely across the coalition so we can take the fight to Daesh. And obviously, and with the jets here on the pan behind me, um, very much the tip of the spear for the UK's contribution to that fight. But it's a very challenging environment. Uh, our guys are and girls are having to show exceptional judgment, understanding and decision making minute by minute on every sortie that they're on Uh, and our key folk in our air operations centre down in the Middle East who are making those calls on employing or not UK weapons against a a resourceful enemy. And Simon, what about the weapons being used and how they're targeted? Did he talk about that? He did, yes. He sees this very much from from a pilot's viewpoint. As I say, he's a former Jaguar pilot. I asked him about the typhoons, which he used to fly, and the tornadoes uh, that are flying these missions from here at Akrotiri. And he did talk to me about some of the weaponry they're using against uh, Islamic State or Daesh, uh, including in this uh, this current ongoing fight for Mosul. At one end of the spectrum, storm shadow standoff missiles, and we've used some of those in this campaign where the targets needed it. Right down to the other end of the spectrum, to the very precise weapons like our dual-mode seeker, brimstone, and the hellfires carried by our, our Reaper unmanned air systems as well. So a real cross-spectrum cross of, of weapons that we're carrying, uh, allowing us to get in and target um, some of Daesh in some particularly confined and challenging urban environments where, let's not forget, there's up to 1.2 million Mosul civilians um, on the east and west banks of the Tigris. And Simon, what response have the pilots had from IS fighters on the ground? Well, thankfully, so far, IS haven't managed to uh, at least effectively use surface-to-air weapons against coalition aircraft, but the, the Air Commodore said that threat is one that they take very seriously. It's there, and they're using them. You know, uh, we're obviously... Um, 
put a lot of intelligence effort into understanding how they're employing them. Our tactics are shaped accordingly as well, and we, you know, we do our absolute level best to make sure that we're operating uh, the aircraft uh, in the right in the right posture. Clearly, at times, there's a lot of aircraft from various countries uh, in the airspace out over over Iraq and Syria, and again, um, you know, possibly unheralded, but we have UK air battle space management staff supporting the coalition effort as well, and one of their key roles is keeping our aircraft safety conflicted. Uh, and with the requisite awareness uh, in those skies over the Middle East. And what about intelligence? Did he talk about what the pilots are bringing back? Well, Kate, he had, he had huge praise for the air crew involved in this mission. He talked to me about their moral fibre in flying these missions every day, but also uh, praise for the intelligence analysts involved in, uh, in Opshader. That intelligence, of course, comes in many forms, footage from the uh, Tornado's Raptor pods or from the, uh, the UK's Reaper UAVs, which are very effective, as we know, in sitting over a location for long periods of time, building up a picture of a particular IS target uh, headquarters building, for instance. And he told me there's a small team of around 11 or so people who analyse that intelligence, and it's uh, then used right across the coalition uh, from three-star generals right down to the air crew in involved in these missions themselves. All right, Simon Newton at RF Aquateri, thank you. Now, this year, up to 400 British troops will deploy to war-torn and now famine-hit South Sudan. Around 70 are already there. SITREP producer Josella Waldron has spoken to BBC Africa correspondent Alistair Leithhead, who's been to see the situation for himself. Well, we went up to um, Unity State, um, which is the area where there are four counties which have been affected by these isolated pockets of famine. Um, 100,000 people altogether, the report says, um, are classified as, as in the condition of famine. Uh, two uh, counties in particular, one of them is called um, Lair. That is uh, basically the hometown of Riek Machar who is the former vice president turned rebel leader currently out of South Sudan in South Africa. But because I think that's a very much an opposition stronghold, that has received a lot of attention from the government forces for the last few years. Remember, it's more than three years since the civil war started. Um, now, every time it reaches this point in the year, this is what they call in South Sudan the lean season. It's when even if people have harvests, uh, this is the time of year when they're short of things, short of food. And that, of course, has just got worse year on year. Uh, this time round, uh, the assessment team that have um, taken the data, because declaring famine is a very specific thing. It needs to have a certain number of boxes ticked. Um, and the conditions were met for them to say on this occasion that there are pockets of, isolated pockets of famine in this part of South Sudan. We saw queues of people emerging from the um, the marshes because this is the sud uh, the the floodplain area of the the river nile um, and this is where people flee into to avoid fighting fighting which is still going on at the moment they hide out on islands uh, they they aren't in one central point for people to help give them food aid that they need and half the country is looking like it's going to need food aid in the next couple of months that's more than five five and a half million people um, but they don't have food because they've not been able to be at home um, they've not been able to be in the land where they've been able to plant or harvest and so they are surviving they told us on uh, on lily pads on wild honey uh, basically scavenging in the wild whatever they can find and some of the cases of the children being brought forward had pretty bad malnutrition. In your years as a BBC correspondent, have you reported on famine before? 
Um, no, no, I haven't. I mean, the last famine that was announced was six years ago. Uh, that was um, Somalia, 2011, where more than a quarter of a million people died of starvation. Now, clearly, South Sudan is not on this scale at the moment. Somalia is warning that it is close to famine again, as are Yemen and parts of northeast Nigeria. South Sudan was the first to declare, and, and a lot of the um, international aid agencies, the UN, are launching appeals, are saying, look, potentially we could have four places all declaring famine around the same time. But for the time being, it's limited to South Sudan. And it's a very complicated factor because it's drought that's affecting Somalia. It's Boko Haram that's affecting northeast Nigeria. It's the war in Yemen that's causing that. I mean, famine is man-made. Uh, basically, the reason that people are starving, that people are dying of hunger, is because there's fighting going on um, and aid agencies can't get assistance in to help them. They know their areas they want to go to and they can't go. They can't get the access to get into these places. Where we went to was a central location where they reckoned about 36,000 people would come out from the marshes, would register, would get medical assistance, would be given food for a month and would go back into the marshes. There were lots of other places in those marshes that people couldn't reach. They couldn't cross rivers. They couldn't cross front lines to reach the feeding positions. And so that's why there's been this call for, for the government to stop the fighting, for the rebel forces to stop the fighting, for a peace deal that was agreed some time ago and, and collapsed horribly last July to be reinstated properly, and for people to be given assistance, which the international community is prepared to give them to try and get them back on their feet. Finally, Alistair, have you got any idea what the 70 or so British troops are doing there currently? Um, as I understand it, they're, they're laying the way. They're working out exactly who's going where, what they're going to do. They're setting up camp um, and they're getting plans in place, I think, to start building um, a hospital in, in Malakal, um, which is an area where there's been some, outside of Malakal, there's been some fighting quite recently. Um, and that's sort of the thrust of their work is to, to very much um, to be construction, to be within the UN basis at this stage. But it's a three-year mission. That was the BBC's Alastair Leithhead reporting on the situation in South Sudan. Now, al-Qaeda's deputy leader has been killed by a US drone strike in Syria. Abu al-Qaeda al-Masri was the son-in-law of the founder of al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, and fought alongside him. He was the man who coordinated international operations for the terrorist group. Well, Charles Lister is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. Good to speak to you today, Charles Lister. Uh, this is the death of al-Qaeda royalty, isn't it? Uh, it's a huge deal. Uh, first of all, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I mean, Abu al-Khair al-Masri is, uh, is a figure, one of the few figures still alive that date back to the very first days of al-Qaeda. Um, his uh, pedigree within the senior leadership of the international jihadi movement dates back at least to the 1980s, if not earlier than that. Um, and his seniority has continued ever since. He's remained within the highly secretive Shura Council um, of, of al-Qaeda globally. Um, he's basically spent the last nearly 15 years and under sort of house arrest in Iran. Uh, he was released at the beginning of 2015 as part of a kind of international um, a prisoner exchange deal between the Iranian government and various al-Qaeda affiliates in the Middle East. Um, and he went straight to Syria. But his death there um, uh, for al-Qaeda globally is extraordinarily significant, but also, of course, it has very big implications for how we view what's going on in Syria these days. Mm, what are those implications then? 
Well, in terms of Syria, I mean, Al-Qaeda, since very early on, in fact, uh, early 2012, made it very clear that Syria was becoming its utmost priority on the whole, in terms of its whole global agenda. Um, that's become an awful lot more clear since perhaps late 2013, when Al-Qaeda actually began to dispatch most of its remaining senior leadership, except for its core leader, um, Ayman al-Zawahiri, um, specifically to Syria. So there were individuals who traveled to Syria from Yemen, from Saudi Arabia, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from Iran. Um, there were a pocket full of individuals who were also in Iraq. And so in a sense, we've seen Al-Qaeda's central leadership regroup in northwestern Syria. Um, Abu al-Khair, uh, his uh, arrival in Syria didn't, of course, happen until around the summer of 2015. But since then, Al-Qaeda core, in terms of its central leadership, has really had its headquarters in northwestern Syria, albeit covertly. Um, and I think this speaks to a broader kind of long-game approach for Al-Qaeda, which is positioning itself on much closer towards Europe's borders. Uh, let's face it, the, much of the Turkish border remains relatively um, easy to, to cross, at least covertly. Um, and Al-Qaeda, as I say, is, is positioning itself on that border within relatively easy travel access to, to Europe and then on to the United States. Um, and it's no secret that Al-Qaeda has made a very significant effort to recruit Western passport holders um, specifically for that purpose. You, you mentioned that he'd been under house arrest for many years. Uh, does that explain why it took the Americans so long to take him out? Or did they have opportunities that they missed? As far as I'm aware, that there would only have been an awareness of his presence outside of Iran from his, since his arrival in Syria. And his arrival in Syria was highly secretive. I mean, um, I, I was told uh, by a number of very well-placed sources in the northwest of that country fairly early on that he had likely arrived. But even then, it wasn't a certain, uh, certain information. Of course, um, uh, governments are certain to have known a lot more than me. So I assume there was an awareness he was there. The, the, the challenge, of course, was locating exactly where he was. Now, my sources on the ground were telling me that Abu al-Khair specifically was extraordinarily paranoid about his own operational security. He never traveled in the same car more than once. Um, he rarely traveled with anyone else for fear that they uh, may also have been being watched by, uh, by kind of hostile actors outside of Syria. So uh, from what I'm told, his death has, has really, really, really sown panic within this kind of al-Qaeda core umbrella in northwestern Syria about exactly how safe their presence there is. Uh, and briefly, against that backdrop, how do you assess the threat posed by al-Qaeda to the UK and the UK's interests as compared perhaps to IS? Well, I think um, as far as what is possible to know in the open source, my assessment would be that Al-Qaeda's objective in the immediate term is not to target the West. It's at least Al-Qaeda in Syria's uh, objectives are explicitly focused on continuing to build up their base in the northwest of that country, continuing to embed themselves within the kind of broader revolutionary umbrella there in order to protect its long-term interests, which ultimately are to launch attacks on the West. So my main concern is actually in trying to confront and combat and prevent Al-Qaeda's ability to create that safe base. That's what Al-Qaeda's always talked about, so that they can't do that in the long term. All right, Charles Lister, thank you. Good to speak to you. That was Charles Lister, Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. Now, Christopher, a 212-year-old sword presented to a Royal Navy captain for his bravery at the Battle of Trafalgar is up for auction in the United States. Tell me more. Um, there were some of these 
uh, swords were presented to people after the battle in 1805, October 1805. And it was because they had done well, the people that received them. They'd done exceptionally well. Um, for example, this one was presented to an American, Captain William Rutherford. In this is the one in question, isn't this it? This is the one in question that's coming up for, for, for auction. Uh, he was in the uh, in the Swift Shore, which in fact was an old French ship they captured and they took into battle. What was important is the significance of the sword itself. The sword itself is not simply a badge of office. You know, a junior, uh, a midshipman would wear a dirk and a, and a bosun wouldn't wear one at all, etc. But it's almost rather, it's, it's, it's like giving almost a royal command, like having a, a knighthood a sort of thrust upon you. And it goes back to the idea of when uh, a young squire would earn his spurs and his sword. Mm. And so the significance is is absolutely sort of quite phenomenal. A lot of people wouldn't have got those sort of things. I mean, one of my old ancestors was at, was at Trafalgar. He uh, didn't get it. He didn't even get killed. <laughs> but never mind. That's good to talk to you. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to all of our guests. Uh, don't forget to get in touch. We're on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. Make sure you never miss an episode. Search online for the SITREP podcast. Thanks for listening. Join me again same time next week. But from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.